Hebrews chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 1. And brethren, let us hear God's holy word. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. May the Lord bless His holy word to our hearts this evening. The title of our message together this evening is The Surpassing Excellence of Jesus Christ. The Surpassing Excellence of Jesus Christ. This morning we spoke together and and considered the issue of a burning heart and we uh, saw that part of having a burning heart is knowledge of our God. Hearing the prophets, hearing the Word and faith in our God and His glorious redemptive work. So tonight, um, I thought it fitting for us to go to the prophets and the apostles and take a good long look at our Savior and His great and glorious excellence. The clear intent of the epistle to the Hebrews is to convince the, the Jews, the Hebrews of that day, to go on with the Lord Jesus Christ and to stay faithful to both the gospel of grace and to the church of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit's method in this is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ by displaying His surpassing excellence over all the things that the Hebrews held dear. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with the types and shadows found in the Old Covenant. It's that Jesus Christ fulfilled them all and surpassed them in His glorious excellence. And now they, these early Hebrew believers, were being tempted to go back to the forms and to the types and to the shadows rather than cleaving to the substance, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I trust that we will take in tonight the blessing... <coughs> of seeing this wonderful argument set forth <coughs> regarding the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and His surpassing excellence. I want to unfold this under two heads. <coughs> so the first one will be extremely brief, and the second one will have all of our time, <coughs> God willing. First and foremost, What we have here is that God spake by the prophets. And then secondly, God spake by His Son. Now literally, the Greek there in verse 2 says, spake in Son. In Son. So let's consider very briefly this first head that God spake by the prophets. 
God not only spoke to the prophets by dreams, visions, and face-to-face revelation. He spoke through the prophets to His people in symbolic language, in parables, in poetry, in prose, in predictions, in narrative, and sometimes just plain language. But it was all to convey to His people the revelation of who He is and His glorious will. So God used these great men that He raised up in His sovereign choice to deliver His message to His people. And that's why we have in verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, in other words, through the unfolding of God's covenant promises, as God unfolded the revelation of His eternal purpose, He spoke at sundry times and in diverse manners in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. But then that brings us to a tremendous contrast. And this is where we want to spend our time tonight. Uh, There are times when I go through this that I like to go back and look at the prophets and take some of them in by example and go through the various ways that they spoke. That will not uh, serve our purpose this evening. But simply to say that God is a God who has spoken and a God who does speak. And in time past, He spoke through the prophets, now in these last days He hath spoken unto us by His Son, or in Son. And that's our second head. God spake not only by the prophets, but He spake by His Son. And there are clear contrasts in verses 2 and 3 with verse 1 that we want to take a few minutes to consider. First, though God spoke in time past, The blessed writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says he now speaks in these last days. We've been in the last days since the days of the apostles. Unfortunately, it is the popular thinking that we're just now kind of edging into the last days. And we have uh, innumerable books being written about all the last days, the last times, right now at this point. But it is clear from the Scriptures that we have been in the last days since the glorious coming of our Savior. And what we're being told is that the prophets, glorious as they were, have been surpassed by a prophet who is greater. And the prophets, wonderful as they were, have finished their work and their time. God speaks now in Son, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit and the Word. Now, though He spoke to the fathers, He now speaks to us. Once again, the glorious expanding of the kingdom. He speaks to us, not only the Hebrew Christians of that day, but also to the Gentiles. This was prophesied by the prophets. God had His glorious chosen people. But they rejected the Messiah. He came into His own. 
and his own received him not. And the glories of the gospel went out past the boundaries of national Israel and to all the earth. Though once he spoke in the prophets, he has now spoken to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. While the prophets were many, there was but one Son. God's servants, the prophets, were imperfect, sinful men. While God's Holy Son is holy, harmless, and undefiled. Now this is illustrated by the prophet Isaiah who said in the presence of God, Woe is me for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. This could never be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the prophets were great men, they were still sinful men at best. The Lord Jesus Christ, as I've already said, is holy, harmless, undefiled. At sundry times and in diverse manners, speaks of the fragmentary way God spoke in the past, while spoken unto us by His Son points to the completeness of God's glorious revelation. We see an unfolding drama of redemption, as one man named his book, starting in Genesis and working its way through the history of Israel. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the glorious finality Amen. of the revelation of Almighty God. Amen. And that's the point of the writer. You see, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past under the fathers by the prophets, contrast, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Completeness. Now this is a vital theme which runs through the epistle. The fragmentary progressive revelation of God through the prophets comes to its fulfillment and its completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, throughout this epistle, there is a great comparison and contrast between the Old Covenant and its revelation of the law on one hand and the New Covenant and its revelation of God's gospel on the other. However, let me make plain, though the Old Covenant uh, regards the law of God, it is not without grace, uh, as I've actually heard some people teach. And they, of course, are extreme, but... Nonetheless, they're there. And though the New Covenant is grace and the Gospel, it is not without the law. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the, superior, the superiority of Christ and the Gospel as the fulfillment of the types and shadows contained in the Old Covenant Scriptures. So, when we go back to the, the, the great prophets that spoke to the fathers, we have a promise from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, where God says, He will raise up a prophet like Moses. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, 
which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Then Acts chapter 3, verses 20 through 23, tell us that this prophet is the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Acts says, and he shall send Jesus Christ. Now that, that goes hand in hand with what we have right here in Hebrews. God. God spake, spake through his Son. And now we have uh, Luke writing it this way. He shall send Jesus Christ which before you, uh, excuse me, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever He shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. So here's an example uh, of, of what we find all the way through the epistle to the Hebrews. The glorious contrasts, comparisons, the things prophesied uh, through the prophets and the things fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now my point in going through this is to say, as set before us here, and as we need to understand at all times, Jesus Christ is the glorious completion of all that the Old Testament pointed to. And we look to Him as the revelation of God, and we listen to Him to hear the voice of God. Now here in verses 2 and 3, we see Christ's surpassing excellence over the prophets. And as we have seen, the prophets were inspired by God Himself to speak and to write the Old Testament Scriptures. They were His holy mouthpiece. His instruments for revealing His purpose, His character, and His will. Genesis to Malachi all breathe the Spirit of God. The authority and the divine inspiration of the Old Testament Scriptures are clearly established by verse 1. Notice how it says, God spoke by the prophets. So when Isaiah spoke, when Jeremiah spoke, when Ezekiel spoke under the Spirit of God, <clears throat> the Word of God was revealed to men. <clears throat> and so we can understand if that was the case, why the Hebrew prophets were esteemed so very highly by the Jews. They were God's mouthpiece. But this is where the temptation lay for them to go back. And the writer is pressing upon them and upon us while they are glorious. Look to Christ because they were speaking of Him. Now, there are seven things declared in verse 2 and 3 about the Lord Jesus that set Him far above the prophets of old. And that's what we want to spend the remainder of our time on tonight. Those seven glorious things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is declared here to be the heir of all things. <clears throat> the Creator. <clears throat> the brightness of God's glory. The image of God's person. 
sustainer of all things, redeemer, and the Lord who rules at the Father's right hand. The prophets were God's faithful servants and inspired by His Spirit. Nevertheless, by virtue of these seven things, the Lord Jesus far surpasses them in revealing God and His saving purpose. Jesus Christ is not only the greatest prophet of God, He is the very subject of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And all of God's eternal purpose and the revelation of His glorious person are wrapped up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So let us feast on Him as we consider these seven things. First, we are told in verse 2 that the Son has been appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. Now an heir, I'm sure we all know, is one who takes possession of or one who inherits something. And the emphasis of the word is the heir's right to possess. It's his right to have it. And we're being told here that the Lord Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Well, why is it his right to have all things? And it is because of who he is. As the glorious and obedient Son of God who perfectly accomplished the Father's will in his role as Messiah for his people. As the prophet, as the priest, and as the king. He perfectly accomplished all that the Father sent Him to do. And God His Father lavished upon Him the rights to all things. Now, before He became man, of course, the second person of the Holy Trinity possessed all things. So we're talking about Christ in His role as Messiah. The man Christ Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the Father's will. And that's why He's the heir of all things. And Christ's heirship also speaks of His Lordship. If He owns all things, if He possesses all things, He can do with Him what He will. He rules. He reigns. He is the Lord of glory and the heir of all that the Father has given Him. He's the heir of the universe. Matthew 28, verse 18. All power, that means all authority, is given unto me in heaven and earth. John 16, 15. All things that the Father hath are mine. Couldn't be any plainer. He has and owns all things and rules with great authority over them all. It's been given to Him by the Father. He's the heir of the nations. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth. For thy possession. The Lord Jesus Christ 
is the heir of all the nations. And friend, the day is coming when all the nations will flow to Him. They will bow down to His great reign. He's also the heir of the church. John 17 verse 2 says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's the church. That's his bride. That's his elect. That's his sheep. He's the heir of the church. Ephesians 1.22 says it this way, God the Father hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. He's the head of the church. And He possesses them. All that the Father hath given me. So He's heir of the universe. He's heir of the nations. And He is heir of the church. Especially in that glorious bond of love. Which He's had for us. From before the foundation of the world. Behold. I have loved thee. With an everlasting love. He's not only the heir of all things. It tells us in verse 2, it says He's the heir of all things by whom also He made the worlds. Jesus Christ, as Creator of all things, must of necessity be superior to it. The prophets were created beings and therefore temporal. Remember our contrast. We're being told that Christ is greater than the prophets. If Christ made all things, friends, He made the very prophets themselves. Christ is their Creator and therefore He alone is eternal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God alone are eternal. Though the prophets were great and mighty men, often manifesting great power, Christ, their Creator, empowered them. It was His power by which they did those astounding miracles in the Old Testament. The prophets spoke and men heard from God. Christ spoke and men heard God Himself. God in a human body. God as human being. The prophets spoke the words, or excuse me, the prophets spoke and words came forth. Brethren, Christ spoke and a whole universe came forth. The prophets had life and spoke of life. Christ Himself is life. The prophets spoke of the splendor and the majesty of creation and its creator. Christ is that creator. He laid the foundation of the earth and He stretched forth the heavens. The prophets were like candles in a dark place. And we thank God for their light. But brethren, Christ, the light of the world, is like the sun at noonday. When the prophets spoke, the Spirit of Christ in them 
testified of Christ who sent that very Spirit and who came to fulfill what they said. Brethren, John 1, verses 1 through 3 says it all in light of what we declare here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now the parallel here that John draws with Genesis 1 is unmistakable and it is by design. The Jews knew that the very Bible began with, in the beginning, God. And so John the Jew, writing to his Jewish hearers, said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. And then he tells us that the Word is Christ Jesus Himself. Brethren, we find in verse 3 that the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, is the brightness of His, God the Father's, glory. This is the third thing we want to consider. I could spend a lot more time on Christ as our Creator, but I will press on so that we might cover all seven of them this evening. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, Paul speaks of the Israelites as those who, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. When Paul writes of the glory, we need to stop and say, what are you talking about? What do you mean by the glory? The Jews had the glory. Brethren, he's referring to the special presence of God among his people. He's saying, no other people on the planet had the glory, the presence of God among His beloved. Though the word glory has several meanings, Paul means the blaze of light and splendor, which is the essential, the essential expression of the holy majesty of God. It is the radiant outshining of God's perfections. It speaks of the riches of His glory. It's the visible sign of God among His people. Stop and think with me a few moments. You see, the Jews called this presence of God the Shekinah. The Shekinah glory. And the sight of God's glory was like a devouring fire on the top of Mount Sinai. The glory of God manifested itself in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the people of Israel in the wilderness. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle when the glory of God filled it. And his face shone and he had to hide it with a veil. Reflecting that glory. The priest could not minister in the temple when the glory of the Lord descended upon it. Isaiah and Jeremiah saw the glory of the Lord and they fell on their faces. Ezekiel watched the glory of the Lord depart from the temple and then from the city of Jerusalem, which is one of the sad passages of the Old Testament. But the Shekinah of God 
returned to Israel in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John means when he says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It says, When He tabernacled among men, it means He pitched His tent. God's presence was there among His dear people. And John recognized that as, as God appointed the tabernacle, the temple in the Old Testament, to speak of His Shekinah and of His great presence among His people, God, uh, John says, I get it. I understand. When we look at the earthly vessel of the Lord Jesus Christ and heard Him speak with such authority, and when we saw His glorious miracles, when He gave sight to the blind and He gave hearing to the deaf, when He touched the leper and His skin was made clean, and when He raised the dead, we saw the glory of our God. Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. He's also the image of His person. Jesus Christ is the express image, we are told here. From the Greek, this means the exact representation, the exact likeness. This word originally meant an instrument for engraving, a tool used to engrave. Then it meant a mark stamped on that instrument. Therefore, it came to be used of a mark stamped on a thing and was used of the, on the impression of coins. It was used of the impression that was made on coins. Brethren, when we see Christ, we see what God's being really is. That's why the Lord Jesus could reprove His disciples. Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and yet hast thou not known me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. We're not talking about the fleshly image, but the glory and the power and the character and the will. All the perfections of the Father radiating through that blessed Messiah. When we see Him, we see what God's being really is. And God as a Spirit is something that you and I cannot know in this realm. But the Lord Jesus Christ becoming flesh represents all that our God is. Now you and I don't know what Spirit is. We've never seen it, or at least if we saw it, we didn't know that. We don't know what Spirit is. It is important to know that God is a Spirit but it's also equally important for us to know that Christ, the God-man, is a person. God came to us wrapped in a vessel of clay. In Christ, we have the exact representation of God's glorious person. Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God 
Christ is also the sustainer. It says He upholds all things with the word of His power. Upholding comes from a word that means to present us with the idea of sustaining something that is in constant motion. It's a very interesting Greek word. The Lord Jesus sustains the universe, that whole mass that is moving and rotating. And uh, when we, we look at it through our great telescopes and, and try to chart all the things that's going on, that are going on. And when we look at mankind and we see the hustle and bustle of life and the changes that take place in the weather and in the earth and all the things around us, there's this incredible motion going on. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all of that. The Lord Jesus sustains the universe with all its changes, all of its transformations, while at the same time maintaining its coherence and carrying on the development. Uh, brethren, that's just hard to take in. This is our God. This is our Savior. He guides and He propels the universe along as He brings it toward the completion of His sovereign purpose. The rivers stay in their beds. The ocean keep within their coastlines. The sun, the moon, the stars all abide in their places while the planets are all held in their orbits. When He's ready for them to burn up, He can send them across the sky in a flash and burn them up so we can watch them. The seasons come and go and everything maintains its proper character by the awesome power of Jesus Christ. He opens His hands and satisfies the desires of all things. Psalm 33.6 says, In whom the God of this world... Excuse me. Uh, Colossians 1.17 says, And He is before all things and by Him all Things consist, and the word consist there actually means hold together. All things hold together just because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, can you take that in? Can you take that in? But brethren, it goes on to even greater works. You say, how could it be greater? We enter the realm of redemption, brethren. And we begin to see something that without His glorious revelation, we could never understand we would have never thought up. This tells us that when He had purged by Himself our sins, that is one of the most blessed Clauses in all of Scripture. By Himself. By Himself. The Holy Spirit emphasizes the work of Christ here in a way that I trust arrests your attention. There is no other Redeemer. There is no other Savior. There is no other Lord. There is no other hope for sinners than Jesus Christ. But brethren, do you hear who He is? The heir of all things? The glorious representation of God? The sustainer of all things? The creator of all things? 
Does He have the power to save you? Does He have the power to keep you from all of this? How could we doubt it? You say, perhaps He's not willing to save me. This very one says, come unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Come, and I will give you rest. He's fully able. By Himself, when He had purged our sins, by Himself points us to the fact that Jesus accomplished the entire work of salvation without the aid of human or angelic devices. He alone kept the law of God perfectly. He alone died upon the cross of Calvary, purging the sins of His people for all eternity. He alone was raised again, and He alone ascended into glory. The word purged denotes the removal of sin and reveals the filthy character of our rebellions against God. Sin stains. Sin defiles. Sin corrupts. Sin contaminates. And sin pollutes. Christ in all His great glory purges it all away. All the sins of all of His people for all of eternity. We must not only be forgiven of our sins, we must be cleansed. And that's why it says He purged us of our sins. This is why David cried out when he recognized his abominable sin with Bathsheba. He said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Well, in this, dear brethren, we see Christ's glorious work as our priest. Listen to Hebrews 7. <clears throat> For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself, Brethren, we are being pointed to the only hope for sinners right here. And I say to you tonight, if you don't know this Christ, this Savior, believe Him. Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the High Priest. Believe that He has satisfied all the demands of the law. Believe that He has satisfied His Father's righteous anger. Hebrews 9 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth through the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, how much more shall the blood of Christ, how much more 
shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience. There's our word again. Purged. Cleansed. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. That's what they're getting at at the hymn. Our hymns very often fail at the glories of all that is set forth in the perfect Word of God. But we strive to say what we're reading in its filthiness. Sin makes us utterly detestable before God. That through the blood of Christ we are washed clean and made wholly acceptable unto Him. When He, by Himself, purged us from our sins. Well, finally, I don't like to leave that point, but let me go to the last one. This last and seventh thing of Christ. It says, After He had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Sitting is a posture of rest. It's interesting that in the in the days of the temple, the people stood and the teacher sat. I won't implement that here. But the people stood to hear the Word of God. The teacher sat and he brought forth God's revelation. Sitting is a posture of rest. And while we have sitting here, we also have on the right hand, which was a position of honor. A position of glory and honor. Therefore, this description of Christ means that He's finished the work that God the Father gave Him. And He's seated at the place of the highest honor. And that's why we should sing, Oh, worship the King all glorious above, and gratefully sing His power and His love. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. In this we find Christ's glorious work as our King. Here at the right hand, this was prophesied, Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. And Ephesians 1.19 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. The work is finished. And Christ is seated in glory. Do you see it, brethren? God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Yes, that was glorious. But, and even more glorious, happened these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Who is He? He is the heir of all things. He is the One who made the world. He is the brightness of His glory. 
He is the express image of His person. He is the one upholding all things by the word of His power. He's the one who purged us of our sins. And He's the one seated at the right hand of the Father. Apply to Him for mercy. Because He's greater than anything that the prophets ever did. And His word and His revelation is final. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. His surpassing excellence as the prophet, as the priest, as laid out further in Hebrews, and as the King, the Lord of all things, fulfills and surpasses all the holy types in the Old Testament, certifies and guarantees for us a full and complete salvation. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying His word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The Prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.